Hey there, Back Channel Radio fans, producer Suzanne Hogan here. Just wanted to say, first off, thank you so much for being on this journey with us. You know the drill by now, but if you're joining us for the first time, stop right here and go back and start the series from the beginning at Boathouse 101. And FYI, this episode is marked as explicit because there is some swearing between the 10 and 12 minute mark and again around the 28 and 30 minute mark. Episodes and extra materials are made possible in part by the Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, Minnesota, a place that promotes meaningful experiences by exploring our ongoing and historic relationship with water, from historic works of art to some of today's most ambitious and celebrated artists. The museum produces and presents an annual portfolio of exhibitions and programs guided around a single theme, like the flora and fauna of the mysterious underwater world. Find out more at mmam.org. This is Back Channel Radio, a Wolf Spider Island story podcast about the history of the Latch Island boathouses. Stories from beyond the mainstream. I'm Gina Favano. Last episode, we learned about LIPS, the Latch Island phone and power service, which was located in a shack at the end of a floating dock. The era of LIPS overlapped with the crescendo of legal struggles on the island during the 80s and 90s when some of the boathousers were trying to establish themselves as a legitimate community. People like longtime resident Trudy Balcom, and so that was the point at which uh, incorporation for the Boathouse Association kind of became an issue. I think there were both sort of uh, cultural arguments against it as well as um, more substantive arguments against it. And John Rupke. We had a right to live here. It's a lifestyle here. This episode we're calling River Rats. And if you don't know what that means, chances are you haven't spent that much time on the Mississippi River. It's hard to provide an exact definition, but basically it describes a specific kind of person who hangs out on the river, who's sometimes covered in mud. If it's used in a derogatory way, it often refers to class, a bum. But in this instance, it's more a badge of honor describing a philosophy, an approach to life. River rats are often resourceful people, hardworking, they live and breathe everything about the river. There's all kinds of river rats. For people like John, Trudy, Judge Shaleen, and all those who chose to willingly engage in the daily maintenance that living this way requires, the work itself becomes a practice. A daily meditation, almost, of living on the fringes on your own terms. Latch Island has always been a place for people to go, to hang out, fish, party with friends. Reverie and revelry have long existed side by side. And in this episode, we'll hear stories about some of the wild ones who galvanized its reputation as a haven for people who didn't always fit within the confines of life in town. Artists, hippies, UFO enthusiasts, young people, old people, often poor, an ex-clergy, a judge, who all had being river rats in common with one another. But like we heard last episode, that moniker alone wasn't necessarily enough when it came to organizing, especially when all those different agencies were coming down on them and wanting them out. At the end of the last episode, John Rupke shared his poem about the Latch Island footbridge and what it represents. We built the bridge that the police won't cross. It spans the cut that stopped the phone company. John was against incorporation for his own reasons. And although he was doing just fine without basic city services like water or power, he eventually wanted his own phone line that was separate from LIPS. John had been trying for a while, but the phone company wouldn't extend their line down to the lower portion of the island. To him, it signified a deeper divide about what it meant to be on Lower Latch or Wolf Spider Island. He didn't want to do anything for anybody 
um, especially the lower latch people, because which, which which are now the Wolf Spider Island people. Yeah, it does feel like even in the few years that I've been here, you can kind of feel the hierarchy yeah. of upper latch to even the name lower latch. Like we're kind of like the miscreants of the. Yeah, that's why we got scene. rid of. That's why we changed from lower latch to uh, Wolf Spider Island. Yeah, you defected. Yeah, <laughs> right. We wanted to. We didn't like the the idea of being called lower, but. We wanted to have an island that um, wouldn't necessarily be inviting for a lot of people to come down, so we, that's why we chose Wolf Spider Island. The dynamic still exists today to some extent, but back then it was way more palpable. If you remember back to the Lips episode, this all took place in the pre-internet and cell phone era, and access to communications is especially important when you're living off the grid. Even getting Lips, the only phone setup for both Wolf Spider and Upper Latch, was a struggle. One of the river rats who made that possible was Digital Don. And John's neighbor for decades, Leslie, helped out by painting the giant red lips on the side. Yeah, we had to really fight for lips, but um, anyways, I got it all gussied up. Leslie recalls it being a struggle to get that community line installed in the first place. And there was an extra layer of tension because some of the upper latch islanders didn't really like that the entire community was using this one spot close to their boathouses to make all their phone calls. Leslie read tarot cards at Renaissance festivals for many years, and if you remember, the Ren Fair was actually how John and Leslie and a lot of people on the island were making their living. And John, along with his partner Norm and their friend brother Gregory, developed the Celestial Circus, a comedy astronomy review that they would perform in a collapsible planetarium. It taught kids about the cosmos. We would go there with the balloon because they loved how we could teach little kids. They go into this big blue, blue, dark balloon and all the stars are up there in the middle of the daytime and, it's, and the sun would drop down the center and we would go, okay, now your head is the earth. It was another innovative way for John to keep teaching, which he loves to do. And Leslie was also a part of it. She moved to the island after John told her about a boathouse that had become available. It was actually his partner Norm's old place. Yeah, you had to be pretty hardy, you know, willing to do a lot or at least find a way to make it happen. To me, Leslie speaks to the original ethos of the island, especially to Wolf Spider, and to the culture that's slowly changing. She's older and eventually moved off when the workload just became too much. I was like, I didn't want to be anywhere else in the whole world. And that was for a really long time. For like maybe 20 years, maybe even more, it was really the only place I wanted to be. She has great style and talks a blue streak, spinning yarn after yarn. Some of her favorite topics to expound upon are cryptozoology and aliens, especially aliens. She's written songs about them. There used to be a social group in town called the Weird Winonans, who were mostly just Leslie and a couple of other friends. They would meet informally once a week to discuss Bigfoot, possible government conspiracies, and always aliens. One of the members even became part of Leslie's backing band. Me and my baby were out watching the sky Spooning under the moon When to our surprise Out of the sky came an alien invasion What a crappy thing to happen when we're on vacation They came and saucer triangle and cigar-shaped craft It looked like the human race was gonna get the shaft then out of the spaceship there came giant lizards They had all the people scared out of their gizzards There were giant menaces and giant ants They had four-star generals wetting their pants 
They might control the politicians, they might control the preachers, they might control the scientists, they might control the teachers. So I said to my baby, this is our last chance before we turn into zombies. Let's have one more dance. So we started singing to some rock and roll. We found out it overcame mind control. So I grabbed my baby, said while we're still able, we gotta get to my records, get them on the turntable. What was the first one again? Uh, oh, that? Space Invaders Rock. It was kind of a... You know? So we put on some music, turned it up real loud. We blasted heavy metal right into a crowd. All of the people came out of their trance. Everybody on the street started to dance. Cause they found out the way to override the programming Everybody on the planet's gotta start jamming So people put on the music in all kinds of places We blasted Little Richard in the aliens' faces Some of the E.T.'s heads exploded Others got dizzy and acted real loaded we played Funkadelic, we played Rockabilly The invaders couldn't take it, it was just too silly So all the people played soul, we even played disco The E.T. screamed telepathically, no, no, no We danced to Motown, we played rhythm and blues We shook those EVs right out of their shoes we danced the jerk, we did the mashed potatoes That's how we overcame the alien invaders Cause the E.T. saw the humans just a-hoppin' and a-poppin' They said, we don't have any weapons that can stop them If the human race is gonna stop and shout Let's get on our spaceships and get the hell out so then Earth's leaders came back to their senses Said we don't need bombs, we got better defenses We need unity, so all war must stop And all the people of the Earth have to go to the hop What's your, uh, would you call it an obsession with aliens? or what's um, your It was, it was an obsession, yeah. yeah, fascination. And I'm still very into aliens, but now I've kind of come, I've just accepted them into the larger reality. And Because I don't, as soon as I recognized it as real, I, I don't know, it just, the ramifications were fucking huge. Deep, did you wide. Have experiences here on the island? Um, yeah, you know, actually a bunch of people did. They say, oh, look there, yeah, I saw some interesting lights go by. Um... Yeah, but I think it's been mainly, you know, just intermittently, you know, throughout life. But they're sneaky little bastards, so, uh, you know, it's like you don't remember you have weird dreams or something, and then, uh, I don't know, you start kind of connecting it later on, and suddenly memories buried for 20 years just pop back up. And uh, anyway, so, yeah, and I, of course, there's a very dark, paranoid aspect of it. Uh, but there's also a very positive aspect of it, because... I'd had that long experience with the Rastas. There was an aw I thought, fuck, they've been here forever. It's this fucking Nephilim, angel, demon, sons of God shit, man. It's like, and then they, it's like, well, 
what is civilization? Who imposed it out? How, how did we get from, you know, living in these tribal democratic societies to what the fuck this shit is, you know? How did that happen? And, you know, yeah, what are their agendas? You know, I mean, just all of it. There was so much uh, that, yeah, and, and I knew it was real, but nobody else did. It was like a... You know, one of those little kids' horror movies, Invasion from Mars. Did you ever see that movie yeah. from the 50s? Yeah. yeah, you know, it's like he's got this terrible knowledge, but he can't tell anybody, you know. <laughs> Esoteric conversations about extraterrestrial life forms weren't in any way unusual in the early days of the island colony. John shared a poem with me that was written about him by Boathouse neighbor and friend Michael Cross. It sums up the general vibe of this place during its heyday. So this is from Michael Cross to me on my 55th birthday in 1990. Back in those days, when the leaves were still fresh in the spring breeze, before the ducks began to brood about their nests, the oldest living member of the Blondie Bunch used to play games of match four and dots, talk erotica and politics, and shake a bamboo stick full of beans between keeping the path to the salad trough well-groomed and the sweat lodge clean. And sometimes, when the moon was full, he used to place a crystal from his bag of tricks behind the eyes of a wooden mask so that it glowed in the firelight while the root goddess danced. And, uh, okay, so... And, and this is a reference to what was going on at the Highland Council Circle besides politics. The High Council Circle was an important part of early island life. It's a clearing on Wolf Spider where they would have their first meetings and discuss the best ways to organize. They also had parties, lots of parties, most of them revolving around the cycles of the moon. Because we had a boat uh, had drifted up called No Ark. No Ark was the name of the boat. It was a flat bottom boat, wooden. And we pulled it up, and we put it at the, in the island council circle upside down, and it was a stage. And when we would gather there, there would be a lot of music, a lot of dancing, and we had a, a, the mask he refers to was uh, the mask of Hishiwi. Hishiwi was the name of the mask, and we had crystals behind it that were lit up. And the root goddess was a... Um, tree, well, you know how the trees get washed out uh, and the roots that remain there along the edge. Of, so we turned it upside down. So it was a, we would dance with, 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 with the tree. We called it the root, root goddess. This poem and John's recollection of the island council circle paints a vivid picture of what life on the island was like in the 70s and 80s. Community sweat lodges, references to giant potluck dinners, games, planning for the future, living life together. But that scene was changing with the decades. Don't be confused, it was not a commune. Quite a few of the islanders were not interested in living communally. Rather, the common denominator seems to be that the people that ended up here were searching for a new way of living, externally, but also internally. Some people moved here to figure out the next chapter of their lives, to figure out the kind of people that they wanted to be. Some people to heal. One of the things that most of them had in common was they were poor. For people like Leslie, it was frustrating to think about all the creative and innovative things they were doing to carve out a different kind of life, only to be challenged by so many types of bureaucracies that were coming down on them. 
guess it was just because it was so such a controversy because um, they fought us so hard. I mean, all of every government agency that existed, you know, tried to get us out of here. So let's get back to the legal fight. It's the early 90s. There's all these agencies pressuring the islanders. And this has been going on for a while, on and off since the late 70s. In the 90s, their main and perhaps most formidable opponent yet was the Department of Natural Resources, also known as the DNR. Informally, the Winona Boathouse Association was meeting and discussing possibilities of incorporation, but they hadn't officially done it yet. It was still an uncertain time for Islanders, and it felt like there was a real possibility these agencies could win and finally force them out. Well, the Army Corps didn't get rid of us, the city didn't get rid of us, maybe the DNR can get rid of us. And so the DNR took three people to court and uh, because they were violating whatever rules the DNR had set up. One of the ways they were trying to get the boathouses out was through grandfathering. So grandfathering out here references a way by which legislative bodies could, in effect, put a lifespan on the boathouses meaning that once they started to fall apart, the owners were not permitted to rebuild more than 50% of their value, effectively dooming them to fall apart further. These were called the sunset laws. We're willing to sit down and, um, and negotiate with any uh, political body, but the one thing we're not going to negotiate is the right to live here. That's not up for discussion. And uh, when they tried to grandfather us out, we said no, Grandfathering us out is not something we were going to negotiate about because we want to stay here in perpetuity. So at least one boathouser got cited by the DNR for having violations on their floating home, and eventually they ended up in court. And I wasn't able to verify all the details of this story, but this is how John remembers it. So they ended up in um, Judge Celine's court, who happened to live on in a boathouse on Latch Oh, he's the judge that you were talking to. Okay, yeah. Judge yeah. Shalene, yeah. yeah. Judge Shalene, who we met last episode, lived in a boathouse on the upper part of the island. This is Austin, Texas, me and my motorcycle. <laughs> Free-spirited judge talks about swamp water justice. <laughs> so they ended up in his court. So what the judge said was, um, well, you know, you changed the rules. Uh, and uh, you're applying that to the boathouses, he says, you know, the law says that if the DNR wants to change the rules regarding something, like boathouses, and there's a request for a public hearing before the rules are changed, then you have to have a public hearing. Did you have a public hearing? And he say, said, no, no, we didn't. And do you, uh, he said, I want you to search the record, your records to see if anybody had requested a public hearing before anything's changed. And so they searched their records and they found a letter by a guy named Judge, Judge Dennis Shaleen, who was the judge they were in front of, who had written a letter many years ago saying that if you change the rules, I want a public hearing. Essentially, according to John, Judge Shaleen had written a clause into the county records specifically regarding boathouses. If the DNR wanted to change the rules about the legislation of the boathouses, they needed to have a public hearing, which they didn't do. So, loophole. This isn't what protected the boathouses once and for all, but it's safe to say it was still an important win and probably bought them some time. But the DNR kept trying to enforce these new regulations. Their definition of the boathouse was something that was 
connected to the land and couldn't be moved except by some kind of mechanical means. Huh. He said, yeah, that was huh. our definition. And he said, that doesn't fit the definition of what we have here because we can just untie the ropes and move them wherever we want. Oh, yeah. And yeah. then um, the DNR could have appealed, but if they lost the appeal, then they wouldn't have jurisdiction over the entire oh, river. Right, and so it, it was a risk yeah, to go to court. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah. So they, uh, they didn't appeal, and that's when they sat down with the city the boathouse people were involved in this too, the city, the DNR, uh, and the, and the boathouse people came up with rules, regulations that were appropriate for floating homes. And what year was that? What year was that? Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> it was 1991. We realized that it was really important in this fight against the state to have the city on our side. The, the city owns the property, the city issues the licenses. We've got to have the city in our pocket. Trudy Balcom says getting the city in their pocket meant not only counting on high-up connections and meetings and parties organized in the form of building awareness, but also getting a community that was pretty anti-establishment to try to agree on a way forward. A lot of the islanders would go to city council meetings. They even organized a boat tour and open house, especially for the city council members. But there was a fundamental clash of opinions on what the future of this place should be founded on. We had an informal, uh, you know, the Winona Boathouse Association at that time, and uh, and I was elected president to that um, organization as an informal leader, and then I helped um, steer it towards um, incorporation and and stayed president through the incorporation process. In 1996, the vote was passed to incorporate the Winona Boathouse Association, and Trudy was its first president. It afforded the boathousers more legal protection than they had previously. They continued to pay an agreed-upon mooring fee, and the DNR issued Winona its first permit to allow boathouses to stay around Latch Island. By incorporating, it meant that the WBA was able to become a nonprofit, which ultimately translated to clout, an excuse for the other entities that be to take them more seriously. The previously tenuous community had started to forge a future that seemed like it could be stable, and that divided the once wild community. So by and large, people on Upper Latch were pro-being incorporated, but not everyone felt that way, especially down on Wolf Spider. Trudy says it was kind of emotional for people. There were a lot of different ideas of how a place like this could or should be governed, if at all. You know, there was a lot of anger and fear. I mean, people are we were talking about people's homes. Um, you know, everyone knew we were kind of in this legal gray area, but, uh, you know, there's a lot at stake. And some people just decided to opt out. The hardest part of incorporation was simply um, getting people on board to do it because, and I'm sure the island culture is probably the, still the same way today. The people on Wolf Spider Island were the most active in the WBA as an informal organization when we were not incorporated. And um, other people on the island were did participate, but to a lesser degree. And so the most uh, vociferous group on the island tend, tended to be from Wolf Spider. And a lot of those people were against incorporation. But we did take a vote, and it was agreed to move forward. Even though John wasn't a huge champion of the incorporation idea, it did mean he could finally get his own phone line. So the phone lines. But it was still a process to get it installed. And once we became legal, 
the phone company, the guy, the, act, the guy that actually works on the lines, who knew all, everything that was going on for years, said to us, said to me, you know, I, I can put a line on that ends on Upper Latch Island. So I said, okay. So he just had to figure out how to connect it to his boathouse on Wolf Spider. But luckily he had some friends who were down to help. And then we went to Fleet Farm and got really good cable under, that works underwater. And uh, John Lockwood and I connected it to that upper latch connection and strung it all the way down <laughs> Wolf Spider Island, uh, across the cut, and then we dug a ditch by hand all the way down the island. They dug a trench by hand down the island to help make John's dream of a landline come true. Hi, you've reached John Rupke's boathouse. I'm not here right now. So at the tone, let me know what's happening. I'll talk to you later. Bye. I love this story because it speaks to the ingenuity and creative problem solving that was what so much of those early years were about. But incorporation signified a changing era. You know, finally we end up with that compromise and then, you know, rich, respectable people started coming down. So, like in a lot of places, the presence of freaky artist types paved the way somewhat for some wealthier people to want to move in. Most people with more resources than the early islanders wanted to have a boathouse as a vacation spot, though. Given the choice, by and large, they didn't want to live there year-round, especially on the wilder wolf spider part, off the grid and the elements through every season. But now, even some of those places are going for larger amounts of money, which is ironic, considering that most of them started out being cobbled together out of floating trash. Not everyone who moved there to escape the status quo liked the direction things were potentially headed towards. Yeah, so I didn't want to see that happen, but I knew it was going to. I knew it was only a matter of time. And nothing against any of the people, you know, all depending on who they were, but just, you know, you wanted to have that free place where it was just such a, you know, we, yeah, it was, and it's still, you know, kind of that energy is just not so new. I was still, you know, kind of, people were still figuring out plastic barrels, you know, and how, and barrel racks, like, whoa, what a concept, you know, just, uh, so yeah, it was pretty cool. But then, you know, they got all regulated. From an outside perspective, the ways in which the community had become regulated in 1996 seems Not minimal exactly, but a decent trade for a little more protection from bureaucracy. One of the opportunities that came with legitimacy was that the boathouses were given addresses that were recognized by the post office. But the fact that mail could not be delivered to floating homes directly meant that the boathousers got P.O. boxes. Porta-potties, which had already been present on the island and paid for collectively, were written into the contract as a non-negotiable necessity. And in line with their concern that they continue to tread lightly and not overwhelm the surrounding environment, The islanders wanted to have a cap put on the amount of boathouse permits that could be issued. The number they settled on was 101. While all this was happening, the original boathousers were slowly transitioning to becoming the island elders. But a new generation was hanging out on the island, making it their own. Like this guy. We knew we were going to do it at Latch Island. We just weren't sure where, and we weren't really sure how, because as far as we know, nobody had ever done anything like this. Bob Armstrong's an artist and a puppeteer known affectionately by the locals as Dr. Bob. The island is a history of being a place where people would gather to cut loose, to swim, play music and games, 
and by the early 2000s, this legacy grew to include homegrown wrestling in creamed corn. And we're like, let's do some kind of festival and put Winona on the map, because there's nothing like that here. And there's Steamboat Days. Yeah, you know, right there, it's Steamboat Days, but you know, like we've been like- Steamboat Days is a three-day-long carnival with rides, cheese curds, all that good stuff that's been happening in Winona for over 75 years and attracts all kinds of people from the area. The dream of cream corn wrestling was a little more rooted in the island underground. You know, like we had been like to places and gone to like, you know, Burning Man and gone to like, you know, these events and these festivals and stuff. And we're like, let's just do something, you know, let's do something. And we're digging around and we opened up the cupboard and we saw like, like, like three cans of cream corn. And we looked at like the people that lived there and it's like, nobody ever eats this cream corn ever. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it, but they get it like at the food shelf or they get it, you know, in a care package or something like that. And we're just like, why don't we have cream corn wrestling? And then just ding, 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 ding. You know, both our eyes lit up and then we're like, oh, shit, you know, let's let's do this. So then it became a matter of like, okay, we're going to need more cream corn. I stacked them all in my garage and I had like something like 199 cans of cream corn. And when we got to Latch, we're like, oh, we don't have a can opener. <laughs> so we had to run. We got like five can openers. And so we're all opening these cans and it's like, God, this is a pain, you know? And then we... we poured them onto a tarp, or I think we had a kiddie pool that year. We poured them into the kiddie pool and it just barely made us, just like... Like an inch of... Yeah, like we had like, you know, <laughs> we had like a shopping cart full of cans of cream corn. And then so someone went into town and actually brought back a shopping cart full of cans of cream corn. And we opened all those up and it still didn't, you know. But, yeah, learn by doing, I guess. Bob had been living up in Minneapolis for a while where he was involved with the punk rock scene. He describes it as being vibrant but predictable. And when he moved back down to Winona, he was impressed by the angst of the younger generation who were ready for something new to funnel their energy into. This went on for 17 years, inspiring a whole new generation of cream corn wrestlers. They're so good. The kids that do it now, they're so good at making a nice wrestling pit. And they're so good at making the corn, like the perfect consistency. It's made an emotional and physical mark on the island. There's actually a little indent on Upper Beach where all the wrestling has happened. And it's weird because I was looking at it, I was like, where do we set up again? Because we were trying to remember where we set up. And we're like, oh, it's probably that like divot, you know? <laughs> Just like literally the earth being pounded by uh, you know bodies. It was like river rat pageantry until recently. Until a pandemic, yeah. That's really crazy. Which made it the longest running festival in Winona, besides Steamboat Taste. You might think that cream cord wrestling would be the type of thing that the mainstream would take issue with, but actually it's been weirdly accepted for the most part. Even the mayor of Winona showed up once a few years back. I don't think it's necessarily what the city wanted, but they really, the city kind of, they didn't really see it as a challenge. I think they always just kind of viewed Latch Island as kind of a no man's territory. Exactly. Like even finding like the language for it. 
Just as this new island tradition, this creamed corn torch, is getting passed down to younger generations, in many ways so is the Latch Island Boathouse community, as a lot of the river rats of that original era from the 70s and 80s are only getting older. Here's a quote from John, from a newspaper article about the boathouses from the early 90s. There's something about government that doesn't like things that don't fit in, Rupke says. People out here aren't living in the mainstream. We're literally and figuratively living in the back channel and happy to be there. But what happens to the islanders, many of them loners, as they age and can't live this way on their own anymore? Next time on Back Channel Radio, where the water meets the land. Oh, for me, I think it's just the romantic beauty, moonlit nights, mist on the river. Back Channel Radio is researched and written by me, Gina Favano, and edited and mixed by producer Suzanne Hogan. Grace Ambrose designed our website, backchannelradio.org, where you can find photos and bonus material. That's also where you can donate to the project. Every bit helps. Music in this episode was by Blue Dot Sessions and Leslie Eaton and the Weird Winonans. We heard audio of Judge Shaleem from the TV show Tomorrow, courtesy of NBC. Special thanks to Leslie Eaton, Trudy Balcom, and Bob Armstrong. Thanks to the original Wolf Spider Islanders and everyone who loves this place. And special thanks to the Southeastern Minnesota Arts Council, the John Latch Board, the Awesome Foundation, and individual donors on Patreon. Support for Back Channel Radio also comes from the Minnesota Marine Art Museum in Winona, Minnesota, a place that promotes meaningful experiences by exploring our ongoing and historic relationship with water. From historic works of art to some of today's most ambitious and celebrated artists, the museum produces and presents an annual portfolio of exhibitions and programs guided around a single theme, like the flora and fauna of the mysterious underwater world. Find out more at mmam.org. Stay afloat. <laughs>